Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, that's for sure. I ask you to grab your Bibles this morning and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. For those of you who are teaching on a subject, as you noticed with the sign that was up here on the table, walk-ins welcome. And the idea is there are a multitude of times in Scripture that the Bible says to walk in something. And there are five of them that we are going to look at. The first one we have already finished. Uh, that is walk in the newness of life. This morning's is walk in love. And so if you would with me, let's read our text. Galatians, not Galatians, I apologize, Ephesians. Wrong, wrong ends. So Ephesians chapter 5, not Galatians. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll give you a moment to fix what I messed up. As I was studying for this series, there was a, an idea, an old statement that I remember from many, many years ago. Some of you may have heard it. Uh, some of you that have gone to church with me in the past have definitely heard me say it. The phrase is, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And no, that is not a riddle, but there is a truth behind it. Uh, what we do, what our walk does make a difference. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read just the first two verses this morning for our text. The Bible says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. As Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. You are so good. As we stated Wednesday night, you are gooder than we deserve. And Lord, I know that's silly, but Father, you are much better than anything we could ever ask. And so we ask for your blessing this morning, blessing most Importantly, upon your word, I ask you, Father, that you would help me to teach what you've put upon my heart. And Lord, I ask you, God, for ears to hear for those that listen this morning. Help us to understand your will for our life as a child of God and help us to walk in it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I thought about this, this is a, a passage of Scripture that I have heard preached out of many, many times in my life. Most often relating to the latter portion, uh, we'll get to that when we get there, but uh, the reason that I wanted to read just the first two verses this morning is the topic we are looking at actually covers the entire chapter, and I didn't think it would be appropriate to read all 33 verses this morning as the introduction, so I am trusting this morning that most of you are at least somewhat familiar with this passage. And so as we get looking at this, I want us to understand the word love in this particular passage of Scripture. There are several different ways that the word love is used in Scripture. There is the physical type love between a husband and a wife. There is brotherly love. And of course, there are a couple of others thrown in just for good measure. And then we come to the one that we see mentioned this morning. The word that is interpreted as the word love is the word agape. And I have often heard this word used as a type of love that is without restriction or without bounds. A type of love that does not expect anything in return. It is the example of the love that God had for us when he sent his son to die for our sins and in our place. 
when we look at this this morning, we are told to walk in that kind of love. Each of us, when we walk through this life, we experience each of the different types of love at different points in our life. And there takes a level of maturity to come to this idea of agape love, a love without requiring anything back. And many of us, we struggle to come to that place to realize and recognize and enable it in our life to live a life where we don't expect anything back from somebody. Our human nature is not built for that. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to understand this morning, the verse number two, it says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We have an example. As Christ also hath loved us, we see in this verse. We have an example of what our love is supposed to be like. And for many, many years I've struggled with this chapter. It's almost as if there's a disconnect within the chapter. A preacher mentioned something similar on Wednesday night, uh, how that in the psalm that he was teaching on, the first few verses seemed to not align with the remainder of the chapter. And in this passage of Scripture, there is a disconnect, or at least a seeming disconnect. And I honestly believe that that disconnect is not as, as valid as we would think that it is. The love that's being mentioned here, we see as we go down through this, we, we must understand, first of all, that the world's idea of love is totally different than the biblical idea of love. The world, the world is all about flesh. It's all about carnality. And we understand that. Most of us, we were saved, a good portion of us anyway, were saved at a, a later point in life. And so we, we recognize what it was like beforehand. And that is one of the struggles that we face. Scripture even warns us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now there's a caution for us. But notice the next verse in verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In these two verses alone, we get the idea that love and lust are, are dia, diametrically opposed. They're dynamically opposed. They are not the same thing. They are basically the opposites of each other. And when we look at this, we see that the world uses the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. As a matter of fact, if you take those three topics in that one verse alone and go back to the book of Genesis, you can find all three of them in the downfall in the Garden of Eden. We see it in the lives of multitudes of humans every day. And often, if we're not careful, we find it in our own lives. But what we need to understand is that God wants our love to be different than the world's love. When we look at the next few verses, verses 3 down through 7, and again, I'm not going to take time to read all of every verse that we come to, especially when we get to the next section. But in this particular one, notice verse number 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these, because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. 
Be not ye therefore partakers with them. We see in these verses the, the worldly view, the carnal view of what love is. Now, we look at these and we, we think verse number three, that's easy to recognize and understand. That is the carnal view of love. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. We look at these and we see the lust of the flesh. We see the lust of the eyes most definitely lined up in one of them in covetousness. When we look at these three ideas here, they are what the world expects. They are what the world desires. They want a physical love. They want a carnal love. And when we look through these, we look at the next verse, we see filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. And we think to ourselves, and I, I struggle with this, I am a comedian at heart. I love comedy. And if I can make somebody laugh, I almost feel as if I've accomplished something good for the day, to be quite honest with you. You can ask my wife, I'm the biggest joker you'll ever meet. But sometimes we can even take that too far and we can push it to its carnal limit. We as Christians, we can, we can use comedy. There's nothing wrong with that. I know some great Christian comics. These, these men are really, really good at what they do. But if we're not careful, we can even push that too far. And we can come to the place where we push it out and we replace love with comedy. We have to be very careful that we don't substitute love with something inferior. When we read through these passages of Scripture, we must understand that God has a plan for us. You see, when, when God showed His love to us on the cross through Jesus Christ's death, He was giving to us an example of what our love is supposed to be like, a love that sacrifices, a love that is willing to lay down itself for somebody else's benefit. We've dedicated this month to the idea of reaching out and passing out tracts to people to try to win them to Christ, at least to invite them to church. You're not going to do that if you don't love somebody more than you love yourself. This idea of love is something that flies in the face of human nature. I can't do that. I had a, had a gentleman not too long ago, he told me, I cannot do what you're asking me to do in simply handing somebody a gospel tract. Well, the problem is he's calling God a liar because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ. And if we don't love somebody else more than we love ourselves, we've got a major issue. When we realize and recognize as Christians what God did for us, we're undeserving. We don't deserve anything that God does for us now or in the past. And if we can't come to the place where we recognize that other people need that same grace shown to them, we've got a major problem. Because we are not showing the love of Christ when we act like that. How many people have used the example, or how many of us maybe, and please don't raise your hand, how many of us maybe have been a part of this, have walked down the street, the biblical example of passing by on the other side, because we didn't like what we saw sitting there. You go downtown, Canton, Maslin, doesn't make a difference. You're going to find homeless folks. You're going to find folks that are unpleasant to be near. They may smell like alcohol. They may smell like drugs. And you don't want to be near them. But in order to reach them for Christ, we have to love them enough to get past that. I'm not saying overlook their sin. I'm not saying to, to set it aside. I'm saying get past your 
fear, your care for self, and love them enough to give them the gospel. When we look at this passage of Scripture, we look at Ephesians chapter number 5, we see in the first section there, verses 3 through 7, we see the carnal view of love. But what we see in verses 8 down through 20, and again, this is a, a lengthy section of Scripture, what we see is a changed view of the world. And this is, this is where God begins to work in us. This is where God begins to change us and, and make us desire something beyond ourself. We read through this section rather quickly. We see in verse number 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I love this admonition of God, to walk as a child of light. When I was a, a young Christian, I was fascinated by the last chapter of this book and this mental image that God gives to us of the armor of light. And in my study of that, I, I, I created a, an alternate armor, the devil's armor, the armor of darkness, taking the same pieces and using them to do what the devil would do with them in our life instead. We need to understand that the devil does have an agenda in this world. He wants to keep as many people as he can. He already has them. You see, before we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, we already belong to him. When we get saved, God changes our, our, heavenly de our, our eternal destination to a heavenly destination. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, we are to walk as children of light. We're to walk as if we're already there. We're to be different. We're to walk in accordance with the example that Christ set for us. He loved us enough to lay down his life. Verse number 9 goes on, and we may end up reading portions of this, but for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You see, the unfruitful works of darkness, this is, this is what the world is composed of. Everything that is being done in this world right now on, a carnal, on the carnal side of things is a, is a work of darkness, and it is unfruitful. How many of us have had a day, pastor was talking not too long ago, my wife and I, we were not able to be here for the work day for the church, and he was talking about how much was accomplished you look at the flower beds outside and you can see where all the mulch was laid down. You can see the fruit of their labor. You can see what was accomplished. But you see, what the world is doing today has no real fruit. The only eternal fruit that it can ever bring about is not good. And as we walk through this life, we're not supposed to be a part of that unfruitful works of darkness. There's a concept found in Scripture that if we, if we continually support what the devil is doing in this world, we are basically become a partaker in his works. That's not a good thing. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to walk in love as Christ did. Christ walked through this world, and when he saw things going on, we see in this verse that he says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. What was one of the things that Jesus was upbraided for, I guess you would say? Uh, he was not a very pleasant individual when it came to dealing with sin. 
could you imagine if Jesus walked into the average Baptist church today? I can only imagine what it might be like in some cases, but I can almost guarantee you there would be whips involved. That was not his crowning moment, I'll be quite honest with you, at least not in man's eyes. But it was actually a proof of his love for them. He loved them enough to reprove them. Most of us in this room this morning, we have loved ones, we have family, we have friends that we want to see come to Christ. Unless we take a stand and love them like Christ loved us, we're not going to reach them as effectively as we could. Sometimes that comes to the point of reproving them for their sin. My wife and I, we have a niece that and we told her flat out she was having children for the wrong reason, and she was not a happy camper. But you know something? Maybe it'll, strength, maybe it'll strike something into her heart somewhere down the road. That's all we can do is trust. I, we love her. We care for her. We want to see her saved. And if she keeps on doing what she's doing, she's, not, she's definitely not showing it, and her actions are not going to lead her any closer to Christ. Now, I thank God this morning we're not saved by our actions. But at the same time, as you and I, as Christians, there should be something about our life that makes us walk like Christ and loves other people. If we skip down to verse number 15, the Bible says, See, that, see then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now, notice these two verses right here. Verse number 15 talks about walking circumspectly. Now, I am a simple individual, and sometimes I have to look things up because I want to make sure I didn't get it wrong. Circumspectly means cautiously, with watchfulness in every way, with attention or to guard against surprise or danger. We are to walk through this life knowing that there is danger involved in the life that we live. And part of this is to walk circumspectly, is to walk cautiously in the lives of those that are not saved so that possibly they might see something in us that would make them desire what we've got. I, have, I agree with preacher. Pastor was talking Wednesday night. He is not a, a proponent of lifestyle evangelism only. But our lifestyle should back up what we say with our lips. Your walk talks. And if we're going to walk in love, we must prove our love to people around us. Unsaved people want us to love them. And sometimes the only way that we can love them or prove to them that we do love them is to remain consistent for year after year after year. The year that we decide, you know, I'm tired of being their enemy. What we have done is we have compromised and we are no longer showing to them the love of Christ. Sometimes the hardest thing that we can do to reach those that we love is to remain faithful to God. That is difficult for us to do because we think that love would mean compromising and giving in when truthfully love is remaining firm. Christ never once changed his mind. As I studied this and as I read through this verse, verse number 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil, I thought about Jesus and his life here on earth. There came a point at, toward the end of Jesus' ministry that he walked into a village 
And the village basically refused to listen to him because the Bible said that he had his face set. You see, he already knew what was coming. He knew where he was headed. He knew what the plan was. He knew what God had in store for him. He knew there was a cross and a death involved in it. And he knew that no matter what happened between the spot where he was and that cross, nothing else really mattered. Because that was the final culmination of everything that he did. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of his work. When we look at this, we redeem the time. We must understand that everything that we do in our life right now is only temporary. And what matters the most is that judgment that comes at the end. We as Christians will stand before Christ. But you know, those that we love, those that we say we love, they're going to stand before a God that is not going to show them any mercy. Mercy will have ended. You see, if they don't accept Jesus Christ in this life, there is no more hope for them. I am of the firm belief that we should walk knowing that we have but a short time. We are to redeem the time. We are told in Scripture that a man's life is basically 80 years. If we have 80 years, it's an exception in Scripture in particular. We think today of those that we see on TV, 110 years old. That's amazing. But that's not the norm. We have but a short life here. We must, we must do everything that we can to win our unsaved loved ones to Christ. And the only way to do that is to learn to love like Christ loved. To come to the place where sometimes it's uncomfortable to tell them the truth, but do so anyway. To love them enough that you are willing to continue to pray for them year after year after year, even when there's no evidence that they're listening. My wife and I, we've got family members we've been attempting to reach for 20 years now. It's only been in the last couple of years that we've seen any fruit at all in this. But we love them. And I cannot imagine standing... Standing beside my Savior as my lost loved ones stand in front of him. And he tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want my loved ones to be able to point to me and say, he never told me. There's an old song, you never mentioned him to me. I don't want that to be said of me. And the only way that I can do that and keep doing it even in the face of rejection, is to learn to love them the way that Christ loves us. You see, this idea of love is something that is foreign to most humans. True love. Here's the disconnect that we see often in Scripture. Starting in verse number 21 down through verse number 33, we see what is often thought of as a change of direction in the conversation of this letter. But it's not. You see, when we read these verses, if we read them carefully, we see a cooperative view of love. The very first thing that God created after he created man was he created family. 
It's the first institution that God created. A husband and a wife. It is the example of God's love. The very first example ever given in Scripture. That God saw Adam's need for a helpmeet. And that God loved him enough to provide that. If you're in this room this morning and you refer to your wife as your old lady, I'd like to meet you in the parking lot when we're done. That's not right. She is a blessing that God has given to you. She is maybe the greatest gift outside of Christ. When we look at this, this passage of Scripture goes on and it begins to deal with the example of love that God had intended for the world to see. You see, the, devil, the devil's really very, very smart. When he knew what God was doing, one of the first things that he created in this world was this idea of lust to replace love. This world operates on the concept of lust. Lust sells cars. Lust sells cigarettes. Lust sells houses. Lust is the primary driver in this world, not love. But that's not what it's supposed to be. And in these verses, down through the end of the chapter, we see that God begins to explain that the only way to really express our love for other people is the example that's set up between a husband and a wife. The devil knew that God's example was valid, and so he set about to destroy marriages. If you're in this room and you've been divorced, you're not a second-class Christian. You're not a second-class individual, but what happened, unfortunately, is you've fallen prey to something that the devil wanted to use to destroy the perfect example that God had created. We see this verse, verse number 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Husbands and wives, God created, I guess you could call it a hierarchy in marriage. We see it described in this passage. I have heard so many messages out of this particular chapter and almost all of them revolve around these verses. 90% of the ones that I have heard have put women down, and I absolutely despise that, to be quite honest with you. That's not the example that we see here. A wife is not inferior to her husband. She is supposed to be in subjection to him, but she is not inferior in any way. A husband and a wife are designed by God to prove that his love can take two parcels and make a whole. My wife has skills that I cannot have. And I'm not talking just simple fact of childbirth either. I'm talking true skills. When it comes to doing the bills at the house, yes, I am responsible. It is my duty to make sure that they're done. But if you want a check sent out, you better get with my wife because I can't write them because my handwriting is un unreadable. We each have our skills. She knows hers, I know mine, and most of the time they do not cross. But they do complement each other very, very well. And that's the example here submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. Verse number 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now this is not given as a hatred for women. Please understand that. Many preachers do 
preach this passage of Scripture with a, a, an almost an attitude about it, to be honest with you. But the wife is not inferior in any way. The reason that God, I believe, set up the hierarchy the way that it is is because of the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. Because at that very point, God told Eve that she would answer to her husband at that point. It's not because she's evil. It's not because she's mean. I tease my wife, women, woman, wicked, ornery, mean, and nasty. <laughs> I tease her a lot. She teases right back, so it's kind of fun. But we do love each other enough to submit to each other when we can. But there does come a point that we have to stand in love. If I know my wife is wrong, I have to tell her. I have to love her enough to tell her. But at the same token, she has to love me enough to tell me when I've gone over the, over the top there. And sometimes that does happen. You guys that know me a little bit, you know I can be a little bit overbearing sometimes. My wife, she knows enough to tell me. That doesn't mean she's correcting me. It doesn't mean that it makes me less of a man. It means that she loves me enough to tell me I'm being an idiot. It is what it is, you know. Does this dress make me look fat? No, honey, it's not the dress. You know, you're stupid. And that basically it's the same. They just kind of weigh each other out right there. <laughs> we see this passage of Scripture goes on and it describes the love between a husband and a wife. The husband is the head of the wife in verse 23. Verse number 24, we see it. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. This is not about the husband and wife. This is about Christ and the church. This is the example that Christ set for us, that He loved us enough and that we are to submit to Him. These examples are supposed to go hand in hand. They're not separate. I don't see where people get this idea that they're two different things. They're not. They are designed by God to work to show us the love that God has for us. I have said this, and I have said it so many times over the years that some people probably got sick of hearing me say it. My wife and I had been married seven years when we got saved. And it wasn't until then that I learned to love my wife. Guys, it wasn't until I knew the love of Christ in my life that I could understand what it meant to love somebody more than you love yourself. That is what God wants from us. We read down through this passage of Scripture, and we're not going to read the remainder of the chapter. Please do so. It's a great chapter. But God wants us to come to the place where we learn to love others. Love them enough that our wants and our desires take second place to reaching others for Christ. My wife and I were talking. We... We've got this pr real problem with, with the program that, that the church is running right now. Our problem is not a problem with the program itself. It's a problem with ourselves, because we don't go out very much. Monday through Wednesday, the only place we go Monday through Wednesday is church on Wednesday night. Thursday and Friday, I go to the office. But you know something? That's not exactly going out, but it is an opportunity to win others to Christ. Sometimes we have to make an, a conscious effort to do something beyond ourselves, My wife and I, we have started recently, not just 
and endeavor to swell, uh, to shrink the swelling that you see around my girth. We have started walking around our neighborhood. Maybe it's an opportunity for us to be able to reach out to others. The whole idea of this program with the church is to learn to look for opportunities. You go places, you go to the store, you go to the bank, you, you talk to people. Don't be afraid to talk to people about the love of Christ. You know, I, I love the way that the Lord works because when, when I have been working on this particular series of messages, running it around through this emptiness in my, between my ears for a long time, uh, we're talking over a year, maybe a year and a half. And I had no concept of this program that Preacher was going to introduce a couple weeks ago. That was the first I had heard about it. I don't know if it's something the church has done regularly before, is it, brother? <laughs> I'd never heard of it, but I love it. And sometimes it's amazing the way that God works to take a lesson and, and mesh it in with what's going on. You've got to learn to love people. As I was contemplating this, there are other passages that came to my mind. Our world lives in a, in a position of hateful and hating one another, as Scripture tells us in Titus. That's the way the world lives. To prove to them that we love them is not to say it's okay for them to sin. To prove that we love them is not to say it's okay for them to do whatever it is they're doing. To prove to them we love them is to come to the place where we realize and recognize their need and then we do something about it. We give them a gospel tract. We sit down next to them and we read the gospel tract with them. We sit down, we open a Bible, and we begin to try to lead them to the Lord if the opportunity presents. It doesn't always happen. But that is what we need to do. God intended for love to be so much a part of a Christian's life that it is the one commandment that he gave to us. We go back to the Old Testament, we read the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, there's basically one it's found twice, both in John chapter 15. Of course, maybe other passages that have it, but these are the two that I thought of. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Yes, that is talking about love between humans. Christians in particular. But we need to love those that are not Christians right now. My wife's family, I would do anything biblically to reach them for Christ. I would love to know that when I get to heaven, they'll be there. Right now, there are only certain members in my wife's family that I have any hope of seeing when I get to heaven. My family... My family's a whole different ball of wax. Some strange folks on my family tree. <laughs> Never quite figured out why tree. Maybe it's because there's so many fruit in the tree. Maybe that's a lot of it. I don't know. Weird people. But we need to love them. Love them enough to tell them about Christ. Scripture tells us in Jude, verses 21 through 23, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 
And if some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The definition of the word compassion that we read in this passage is a suffering with another, painful uh, sympathy, not symphony, sympathy, a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress or misfortunes of another. But I think there's a better definition. It's love moved to action. Compassion is caring enough to do something. Caring enough to step out of your comfort zone. Maybe you don't like talking to other people. I, I would talk to a tree if I thought I could get it to answer. I will talk to anybody at any time. Makes no difference. But we're not all like that. Sometimes it means stepping out of your comfort zone to prove your love for somebody else. First, I would encourage you this morning, please don't stop trying to reach your family. My wife and I, we've had several times throughout the years that we've just wanted to give up. Don't. Because if you give up, who's going to reach them? God put you here for a particular reason. And I don't mean just in this church. I mean here on earth. I've kind of got this attitude that God's got a list of people that he wants me to see saved. I can't save them, but I can try. I could try to lead them to him. And the day that I give up and I sit down, you know what's going to happen? He quit trying. Might as well take him home. I'm not scared of dying. I'm not afraid. I look forward to going to heaven, but I don't want to get there and have him look at me and say, you missed the mark. I had something still for you to do, but you quit doing it. God loves us. And if you don't love your family in particular, you've got a real problem. Because the Bible is very clear that if we cannot love those that love us, how can we ever say that we know Christ is our Savior? I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying maybe your heart's not quite right. It is possible for a Christian to be out of the will of God. I love you guys. I've grown to love this church. And I don't want any of you to have to stand before our Lord and give an answer as to why you failed Him. I want you to show up at the judgment seat of Christ and him to be able to look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's not going to happen at the other seat. That's only possible for us. Love this morning. We look at this idea of walking in love. Walking in love means walking through this life, looking at it the way that Christ looked at it. Loving it enough to reach unsaved people. Let's bow our heads this morning. We have about 13 minutes or so before the morning service. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and all stand if you would. As the piano begins to play, I would invite you this morning. I would invite you to examine how much you love your family and friends. 
Do you love them enough to step out of your comfort zone to try to reach them? There are gospel tracts on the back table back there, bundles of seven as pastors already mentioned this morning. Please grab some. Try to take the opportunity to talk to somebody. But if you can't, at least give them a track. If you don't love them, nobody else will. Pastor? As our heads are bowed and piano's playing, maybe God's spoken to your heart. Take a moment and pray. The altar's open. Whatever the need. Maybe you need to be saved. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to join the church. Whatever the need is. Maybe God's spoken to your heart about praying for somebody or passing out a track or working on somebody. Walking in love. What a great message. Something the world certainly needs to hear more of. Christians need to practice more of. and bring our 